Welcome to the Table Community Church Podcast. The Table is located in the Gallatin Valley in Southwest Montana and is joining God in bringing people together around the good news of Jesus. If you have any questions or if there is in any way we can serve you, please let us know by reaching out to hello at thetablechurch.us. Again, that is hello at thetablechurch.us. We hope you enjoy the following episode. And so we're going to pick up in Matthew 17, verse 24 through 27. We're looking at three verses today, but don't let the short text fool you for a long sermon. Just So don't get too excited, because it's amazing what we can pull out of these verses. So Matthew 17, verse 24, we'll go through 27. It says, After Jesus and his disciples arrived, In Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. And so when Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon? He asked. From whom do the kings of earth collect duty and taxes from? Their own children or from others? Uh, From others, Peter answered. The children are exempt, or better word is free. Jesus said to them, But so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. This is the word of God. Amen. Uh, One of the most meaningful moments in my spiritual walk came early on, uh, kind of right when I was getting back into faith. I'd grown up uh, not in the church, but I had a family who surrounded me and kind of introduced me to Jesus. But it wasn't until I was uh, 16, 17 where I really began to like take this thing seriously. There had been a lot of going on in my life that um, up until between 10 and 17 where I just wanted nothing to do with church, wanted nothing to do with uh, Jesus really. Um, I believed in God, but I didn't know Jesus, and there's a difference. And so that was kind of my walk up until I was 16 or 17-ish years old. And I was dating a girl in high school whose dad would not let me hang out with her unless it was at church. And so naturally, I found myself back in church. As I walked into the church, I noticed real quickly that the musicians looked really cool. And I had just started picking up playing guitar. And uh, I knew a little bit, but not a lot. And so I remember, I remember the first night I connected with the worship leader, Tyler. I was wearing an Ozzy Osbourne shirt. And I had like, of course, I still wear Converse. But my Converse, my, my hair was all like spiked and hard gelled, you know. It was really the style. Maybe it wasn't, and that was just my style. I don't know. Um, but I walked in, I met the guy, and I thought it was really cool. And I told him, I was like, yeah, I play guitar. He goes, really? I said, yeah. And he goes, you should join us. I said, yeah, let's do that. And he says, can you play? And I'm like, yeah, I can. I I really couldn't, not well. And so he said, well, show up next week and we'll play. And, you know, we'll have you go through the rehearsal and you can play with us. I was like, all right, cool. So now I'm, you know, I'm dating a girl. I'm in a band. It's everything that a teenager wants. And so I show up, have my electric guitar. We started playing the song. I remember it was a Hill song, a song called Take It All. I don't know if you remember that song. It was very, became very clear during practice that I had no idea what I was doing. He's, he, he stopped kind of in the middle of the song. He goes, hey, okay, here's what, I want you, here's what I want you to do. I want you to 
want you to play this high F sharp right here, just right, just slam it during the chorus and then stop. That's all you have to do. And he did that for every song. I want you to slam this one note or one chord during the chorus and stop. Very good. And so I did it. And afterwards, I remember thinking, I, I lied my way onto this worship team. I, told, I, I could play. I really couldn't. I should not have said that. I had lied my way onto the worship team. And Tyler had every reason to ask me to leave. He had every reason in the world to tell me, hey, you're not ready to sit down. Every reason in the world to say, you lied about your, your skill set. That's not okay. Like, it's time to go. But rather, he chose a different route. Rather than, than kicking me off or asking me to leave or embarrassing me, he, I think he saw that I was just stepping back into a space where I was getting serious about my faith. And, he, and instead, he chose to patiently teach me, not rebuke me, and allow me to participate. And oh, rather than him being right, he chose something that I think now was wise. Because had he corrected me and just saying, you don't know what you're doing, I guarantee you I would have not walked back into the doors of that church. Guarantee you. I know where I was at that point in my life. Would not have walked back in. Tyler had the spiritual sense in that moment to choose what was right, wise and trying to discern the right way to go about doing it. And I'll, I'll never forget that. I will never forget that moment when he chose to sacrifice himself being right for the sake of someone coming to know Jesus for a second. And he became an important person in my life. Throughout the next couple of years, I, was, I went through a lot in our family, and his family were the ones that took me in and cared for me and uh, taught me about Jesus. He was seeing the situation through the lens of mission. He didn't think it was a hill worth dying on, but and actually dying on that hill would have killed the opportunity to witness to me over the long haul. He pick and chose his hill well. Now, is that the wise, is that the wise thing to do in every situation? So if every time somebody comes and lies their way into the worship team, is that the right thing to do every time? No, I don't, I don't think so. But following Jesus is really gray sometimes when you're trying to figure out how do I best minister to somebody who's not quite where they need to be spiritually. It's very complicated. You know, I heard another story. We, when we were meeting in the warehouse, we had a young man who joined us, and he moved on, uh, moved, uh, I think, over to, no, he moved to California, uh, moved back to California with his family. When he came in, though, I remember having a conversation with him about you know, his time in church, and he says, this is the first time in 12 years I've set foot in a church. And it wasn't really a church. It was, it was like a warehouse, and it wasn't a church building, which made it less threatening, I think. And I said, tell me your story. Well, he went to church, and the pastor from the pulpit pointed him out and said, young man, take off your hat. This is the house of God. And he was so embarrassed, and he was so overwhelmed with a sense of, like, everyone was looking at him. He took off his hat, and he sat quietly, but he never went back into the church until the warehouse. And we're thinking, man, we have to be really careful, don't we? We have to be very careful with what we perceive to be a biblical truth, but is actually more of a cultural norm that we read into the Bible. And pastors taking extremely strong stands over the last couple of years on things that we have no business taking stands on. Many of you, many of you have noticed I, I was very quiet on vaccines. You know why? I'm not your doctor. I, I, I'm not, I am not an immunologist. 
not my lane. People came to me and asked me my opinion. I said, you should probably talk to your doctor and make the decision that you feel is best for, your, for you. What we've done over the last couple of years is we have created a lot of obstacles and taking strong stances and things that aren't worthy of taking strong stands on, and it's killed, in many ways, the witness of the church and the community. I'm just getting started over there. You just calm down. <laughs> no, no, no. If, you, if you're taking notes, the title for today is On Being Unnecessarily Offensive. On being unnecessarily offensive. And what I hope that we take away is that the church is a community aiming to reflect the sacrificial love of Jesus. Because this is all over the text. You see, in this text, Jesus illustrates the importance of learning what hills are worth dying on. And in our cultural climate, this is an extremely relevant and challenging teaching for us. This is an important word for us in recovering the church. Learning what is essential, what is non-essential, what hills are worth dying on, which ones are not. All of us have opinions about various things. I've got my opinions. But we have to figure out, is the way I approach a situation, is it going to create an opportunity or an obstacle in representing God's love well to other people? And so we're going to move through this in a couple of ways. We're going to look at first the temple tax in this text. If we, if we, if we want to get a grip on how important this is, we have to understand this weird concept of a temple tax in order to bridge that kind of cultural distance. In the New Testament, you find two tax collectors. The Roman tax collectors who are Jewish people who have been, uh, who are now working for Rome, these are the ones that have their own unique category. They're the, t the tax collectors, okay? These are the ones that are lumped in with sinners and tax collectors. Um, they have betrayed their people. They collect taxes on behalf of Rome. They make a large profit off of their own people. Uh, not a good situation. Think about Zacchaeus. This is, this is what Zacchaeus is, uh, that sort of tax collector. But then there's another tax collector, which we really rarely hear about, and that's the temple tax collector. And this is more ex explicitly within the community of the Jewish people for the sake of the temple. And so we need, don't confuse those two. When we're dealing here with the latter, the temple tax collectors, not the Roman tax collectors. And in order to understand the temple tax, we have to first understand the importance of the temple in the life of God's people. Early on, after they were set free from Egypt, they built the tabernacle, which is what you can call a mobile temple in the wilderness to worship, to, to praise God, to offer sacrifices. And all throughout history, the, the building of the temple was in mind. And when it was built, it was, the huge, it was a huge deal. And when it was destroyed, it was heartbreaking. And it was rebuilt again. And Jesus' day, we're in the second temple. We call it Second Temple Judaism because this was the second temple. And what's happening here is the temple in the second temple Judaism is taking on a much bigger project and program within the life of the Jewish people. It is the center of their life, commercially, educationally, spiritually, politically. This is the center of life for God's people at this time. You cannot over, overdo the, or overstate the importance of the temple during this time. And so that, I think that's important to note. Now, this idea of the temple tax, it goes back to Exodus 30. And what's happening in Exodus 30 is God is making provision for when people sin. He's saying, hey, 
here's some, here's some things you can do to show that you have a loyalty, not, not just to your nation, but to me. You have to have a loyalty. You have to illustrate this and enact this. When there's a sin, offer what's most valuable to you, and he, he, call, he calls it basically a ransom or atonement offering. This is what we call now the temple tax. In Exodus 30:16, it says this, Receive the atonement or ransom money from the Israelites and use it for the service of the tent of meeting. That's the temple on wheels, basically. It will be a memorial for the Israelites before the Lord, making atonement for your lives. And so he says this is one way to illustrate repentance. They're not giving money to get, to get right with God. They are in relationship with God. And when they give their money, they are illustrating ultimately their highest loyalty, their highest devotion to God. Because oftentimes it's that very thing that keeps us from following God faithfully. And so this is one of many ways in the Old Testament that illustrated repentance, loyalty, and rejection of idolatry. Was what were they willing to give? And so God made this provision and called it a ransom. If you really want to experience God's presence, surrender what's most valuable is a 10,000-foot way oversimplification of what's going on there. Think, keep that in mind. This enabled people who were continually in sin to enter into the presence of God in the tent of meeting. It was given when sin took place as an atonement or a ransom, but also memory. When they would surrender what was most important to them, they would be reminded of what happens when they're completely dependent upon God, like the days, in the will, like the days of coming out of Egypt. Now, by Jesus' day, this temple tax had taken on a completely different character, and it was hotly debated. It went beyond God's intentions back in Exodus, and it had skewed the scriptures. It had become the thing that you just do for many different reasons to fund the various life of the temple. Del Bruner, a commentator on Matthew, says it like this, Praying the temple tax was a fundamental sign of piety. Not paying it was a sign of godlessness. Paying the tax was a way of showing that one wanted to maintain solidarity with the people and the law of Israel. That's how important it was. If you didn't, if you didn't give that temple tax, you were perceived as someone who no longer wanted anything to do with the temple, no longer wanted to do with the people of God. It was that thick of an issue. And in Jesus' day, there were multiple perspectives on it. Multiple perspectives. Some, like the Sadducees, said, no, you don't give the temple tax. That's not, no, we're not doing that. You have some who said, uh, like the Pharisees, no, you're giving the temple tax. This is fundamental to who we are. And then you had some who said, well, it's kind of complicated. You give it in this context, but not in this context. And you had some who said, you know what, all this is a mess. We're going to go hide up in the hills and, and create our own sort of thing. And they did. This was a, this was a politically, culturally and spiritually charged issue, this temple tax. And so, with that very oversimplified sketch of the temple tax, we're ready to kind of feel out the text a little bit. So Peter's approached. Why wouldn't it not be Peter, right? So Peter's approached. Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? And of course, Peter doesn't say, let me go get Jesus. Peter says, yes, he does. It's easy to gloss over this, but we need to keep in mind that there's not a positive portrait of Peter in this section of Scripture. Okay? That's the first thing. The second thing is that Peter has a tendency to speak out of turn. And we think this is what he's doing here. 
we think, we don't know why he's saying it. Maybe he has seen Jesus pay it in the past. But perhaps, like he has in two other times in this section, perhaps he's trying to keep Jesus in the good graces of the religious elites to avoid the cross. Perhaps that's it. We can only speculate, but I think it's somewhere in that area. And so Peter says, yes, he does. He does. Everyone calm down. He pays the temple tax. And he walks in and it says Jesus somehow overheard it. And he tells this parable that illustrates the sacrificial nature of who we are supposed to be as Christians and followers of Jesus. Now, he tells this parable of about a, of which do, how do kings operate, basically? We live in, we live in a republic or we have demo, a democracy. And um, so it's very challenging for us because we in America, we expect everyone to be taxed and, and to pay taxes. This is just kind of the cultural air that we live in, the societal air that we live in. The idea that a president's kid would be exempt from all taxes would not, <laughs> would not fly well here. But in a monarch, it was a little bit different back in Jesus' day. The kings would not make their people, their, their family pay. And so Jesus is using that cultural reality to, to build his case. He says, wait, wait, do kings make their children pay or do they get it from others and peter answers correctly oh yeah the children don't have to pay and jesus says, so children are free and so peter's probably like oh dang i just jesus i just told them you pay the tax man because jesus you just said children are free from it you're you're saying that you were free from it because you're the child of god my bad and we would expect jesus to say the children are free so we don't have to pay and jesus mentioned several times that he's the son of god and so what he's saying, he's like, I actually own that temple. I don't have to do anything. He says, the children are free, but this is a very hard word for us, given this context, but so as to not cause offense, go pay the tax, essentially. What's interesting is this text has very little to do with the tax. That's an illustration of a principle that Jesus is giving us as, as his followers. And so let's talk about that. The next thing we're going to talk about is this principle. You see, Jesus tells this parable and reveals the central principle for living a Christian, living a Christian life in a world that doesn't know him. And the, and the principle is simply this, using freedom to sacrificially serve others. Using freedom to sacrificially serve others. so that we might not cause offense. Well, the word offense here, it's been used several times already in Matthew 16 through 18. It's going to be used again. You'll see it pop up at least two more times in our time during, during this section. The Greek word is scandalon. It's where we get our word scandal or scandalous. And scandals have a way of causing a hiccup in an otherwise straight trajectory. And so this is why we interpret it as an obstacle. That's the better rendering of this. So as to not cause an offense or to set an obstacle or a stumbling block, better yet, will pay the tax. Now, what's at stake here is Jesus, he's saying, this is not a hill worth dying on. I don't have to pay this. I own the place. But given the situation, this is a second level issue. Peter Go pay the tax. I'll, I'll cover yours as well. What might be at stake is if he causes a fuss now, 
over a second level issue, in Jesus' mind, it's going to be an obstacle for people to coming to know who he is unnecessarily. Jesus is going to overturn the tables to which these coins are traveling to in a couple of chapters, but not yet. There's a sort of delayed restraint, waiting for the right moment, waiting for the right hill. But we are impulsive, aren't we? Jesus is giving us a glimpse about what it looks like to restrain for the sake of witness and reflecting God's love. If he wouldn't have paid the tax, he's putting the tax collectors in a very bad situation. The temple tax collectors, who are perceived as good guys. He's putting his disciples in jeopardy. He's just, there's many things that could go wrong by amplifying a second level issue. And Jesus is saying, it's not worth it. Let's not cause a stumbling block on this issue. He's got a date with the temple, to be sure, but not yet. Since when is Jesus not offensive? Oftentimes when I talk about the offensive nature of Jesus, everyone's like, yeah, Jesus, he was offensive. You see, they flipped over the table. He's always, woe to you who reject me. He's very, his message is very offensive. Since when is Jesus concerned about not being offensive? Well, I think it depends on the issue and the situation, right? Go back, a fun Bible study for you is to go back and see to whom does Jesus give his most harsh words for? Who does he reserve his most offensive teachings for? It's always the prideful, the religious people who think they're in, and the unjust. So there's that to consider. Jesus has no problem with sharing a message that is hard to swallow. But he's saying here, make sure it's the right message. Make sure it's the right moment. You see, often we get so caught up in fighting cultural wars on either side, and it might get a candidate elected, it might get our desired outcome politically or socially, but our Christian witness and demonstration of God's love is compromised by the end of it oftentimes. When we wield the sword as a weapon for cultural war, our prophetic witness is compromised. Jesus had every freedom, every ability to speak into every hot-button issue that was surfacing at the time. And there were many, many, largely around similar things that we debate here today. I've been saying this for a long time here, that a lot of what we are facing today is not necessarily new. It's just repackaged for a 21st century audience. And so Jesus makes these culturally and politically charged issues a little simple, and it makes it about how his followers, who in his, in his group of 12 disciples would highly disagree what we know about these disciples, about the temple tax, he's saying, look, this is a politically charged issue, probably not best to speak into it right now. Um, let's focus on demonstrating the kingdom of God. That's what he's telling his disciples to do here. And let's be honest, we love stories of self-sacrificial acts, right? We love them. We love hearing stories. I'm reading a book right now. It's a fascinating book about a handful of Jewish people who were able to escape Nazi Germany, but then they joined the American military and went back to try to help liberate their friends and family. They found freedom. They didn't have to do anything, anything. They could have just started going about their lives, yet they chose to sacrifice their freedom for the sake 
of others. And we look at that and we go, wow, that's beautiful. You think about Harriet Tubman, who escaped slavery only to return on multiple trips to help others find freedom. Did she have to do that? No. But she gave up her right to run from an unjust system and re-enter that same unjust to get people out. St. Patrick of Ireland did the same thing. Church history is filled with stories of people doing stuff like this. We love the stories, but we struggle to practice it. But the reason why it speaks to your heart and my heart is because it's, we know that it's how things ought to be. And we lack the spiritual depth and conviction to walk that same thing out. There is probably no more important word for the, for the church today than to get back to doing the Messiah-like things. <laughs> of caring for people well, serving those in need, and sharing the good news of Jesus. But the word sacrifice means cost. And so what Jesus is saying is be willing to surrender your right for a moment for the sake of a witness of Jesus, to Jesus. And so in using freedom to serve others sacrificially, we become more concerned with reflecting God's love, reflecting the way of Jesus, than we do about winning an argument. This may work out a couple of different ways. For example, choosing to abstain from something that you enjoy and that you're free to do for the sake of another. In, in, in the scriptures, Paul has an example of, of food being sacrificed to idols. You have some, you have some young Christians who have come in, um, and they have been saturated in a world where food's been sacrificed to idols, and now they've come to know Jesus, and they're like, I don't want to eat that. I don't want anything to do with that. And Paul says in the text, it's a nothing. You can, you're free to eat meat. You're, you're, you know, it's, it's a no thing. But, but if this person comes in and it's an issue of conscience for them. Paul says, why would I want to eat meat in this context if it causes a stumbling block? He uses that word for my brother or sister. That's the kind of mindset Christians are to have, though. Being willing to abstain from something for the sake of another. The big one is alcohol. That's, that's kind of been a, a, a one that we've, we've often talked about in the life of the church. If someone has come to know Jesus and they are recovering, it is not wise to do that around them in many cases. You abstain for the sake of not causing them to stumble. Now, are you free to drink? In moderation, yeah. Can you do it? Yeah. Do you have to abstain? Well, insisting upon your own rights. No, you don't have to. But Paul says this thing in Corinthians. He says, for all things, for, for, he's talking to this church in Corinth here. He says, for you, all things are permissible. But that's the wrong question. The question is not, is it permissible? The question is, is it beneficial? And so being willing to surrender for the sake of another so as to not cause a stumbling block. So choosing to abstain from something for another, that's one way it works out. Another one it works out is choosing to restrain our strong opinions for the sake of preserving a long-haul relationship with people. This is one pill that's hard for us to swallow. Sometimes we argue 
and we have this innate desire to be right, but in our desire to be right, it might cost us a relationship. Going back to the Tyler situation, he had every right and he would have been right to put me in my place, but the cost would have been me not coming back to that church. I guarantee you. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 5, 13 through 15, to a church that's divided over doctrines, okay? You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by one another. Meaning when we start biting and devouring and elevating our doctrinal or political opinions to places where they don't belong, watch out because you're going to kill each other. And it's going to destroy the church's witness in the process. Let me be very clear. There are important cultural issues to which the church has a lot to say. But an important issue doesn't mean it's an essential issue. Several years ago, I met with a I met with a father whose relationship with his son had recently uh, been disconnected. And it happened over a cultural issue. Uh, they, were, they were sitting down one day, and on the news came, uh, came a public figure who identifies as gay, and he and his husband adopted a child out of the, fo- out of the state's foster care system. The father made some comments that the son took offense to. And they got into this heated debate where the father was slinging Bible verses. The son was slinging Bible verses. They were, they were swinging stats at one another. And it resulted in their relationship being ruptured. They blew up over this issue. And they hadn't talked up until the point where I was meeting with this father. And I was asking him, as I asked him to tell him the story, I said, let me ask you, like, Looking back, what would you now change about that situation? He says, I wish I wouldn't have done that because now I don't have a relationship with my kid because of that one issue. And I've never talked to the kid. I don't know know his perspective. But this issue that was in a completely another state that came up on a two-minute news blip fractured this relationship because there was not a lack of restraint. Of opinions. Tell you another story. More recently, um, early on during COVID, I spoke with a mother who worked in the medical field. Her daughter worked in the medical field as well. Now, the mother, she was a little skeptical of the vaccines, and the daughter was not. They got into this huge argument over this particular issue. And their relationship was ruptured. And I was meeting with, talking with the daughter about the situation. And I asked her the same thing. Looking back, what would you have done differently? And she goes, I just, just be clear, I haven't changed my opinion. I said, well, what would you do differently now? I probably wouldn't have said it the way I did. I probably would have approached it differently. Because now my mother-in-law, now our mother, now my relationship with my mother is fractured. The, the common thread was bo- in both situations where Bible verses were being thrown like baseballs. Stats were being shared like they were on tap. 
in each conversation, there was more of a desire to be right than being in a relationship. And it was ended, at least up until this point. Again, important issues, absolutely. Essential issues, let's keep talking about that. And so sometimes when we go up, when we develop these strong opinions about various cultural issues that are often very complex and often very outside of our expertise, we go out on, our, on a limb and then we saw it, saw it off and then we come crashing down. I've never seen so many, so many immunologists in my life than on social media right now. We become experts overnight because we think we have an opinion on it. It's fascinating to me how we work. You know, the, the queen recently died. And uh, all of a sudden, on social media, everyone became an expert on the queen's historical life. I'm like, well, this is fascinating. And debates enraged. I'm like, geez. You know what it's like to kind of type out a post and then not post it, right? Yes, me too. And sometimes I post it and I go, well, you know what? <laughs> and I go back and delete it real quick. And sometimes people see it before I, like, I, I saw you delete that. I saw you delete that. I don't have this thing locked down and figured out. And that's okay. Because we're not called to have this perfected. We're, how to be, we're called to be in process of getting better. When we find something in Scripture that Jesus teaches, our job is not to say, well, darn, I can't do this. Our job is to now say, well, I'm in process of following Jesus. This is what he says to do. Therefore, that's what I will do. And so when we find these principles from Jesus, we have to figure out how to integrate these into our lives. Now, what this is not saying... This is not saying caving in on important truths of Scripture or to have a cowardly spirit about Jesus. This is not saying obliterate your opinions, obliterate what's important to you, obliterate who you are. It's saying identify what's essential and non-essential, die on the hills of the essential, keep going in patience and grace and resilience in the non-essentials. Stay with people for the sake of the gospel that we may better demonstrate God's love to people. This is not about removing the core convictions. It's about how we hold those convictions in public spaces and in relationships. That's what Jesus is getting at. The best thing that we can do here is to learn the art. It is an art. It is a craft of trying to discern what this looks like. What Jesus gives us here is not a set of answers. It's a compass of navigating difficult terrain. Paul, Paul gives a long expression in 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23. He says, Though I am free to belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like, or to those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. To the weak, I became weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means possible, I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. There is no way you can read the New Testament and not be confronted with the self-sacrificial nature of following Jesus. And Paul hits it right on the head here. He's not saying... I became that thing. He's not saying I adopted that entire worldview. He's saying I accommodated myself to these people that I may learn from them, hear from them, and know where to connect the gospel to in their lives. In missions, we call this contextualization. 
knowing how to adjust according to the situation in which you find yourself, that we may better represent Christ. Are my posts representing Christ? I was just driving down the neighborhood around here the other day, and the amount of political stuff that's in people's windows, I'm like, you know, if they ever invited me to church, I don't know that I would go to their church based on the, 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 the grotesque and the uh, just flat-out vulgar stuff. I'm sitting here going, if they came over and said, hey, come to church with me, I'm like, that's a stumbling block for me. Am I saying you don't have opinions? No, hold, have your opinions, but hold them in a way that honors Jesus and loves your neighbor well. All things to all people means positioning oneself as a servant, not a sage of culture. We are here to serve, sacrificially like Jesus, finding the right hills to die on. Because guess what? Jesus found the right hill to die on, and it wasn't a temple tax. And this leads us to the last thing, the gospel. If we don't understand that this is part of the core of the gospel, then we'll, we won't apply it. We have to know that this is, this is crux to, to recovering the church and being disciples. You see, the temple, the very temple that he was paying taxes to, in a couple of chapters, he's going to go and overturn tables. What's fascinating about this is he overturns the tables for the same reason he pays the tax. The tables he turned over were in this place called the Court of the Gentiles, and they had set up all of these money-changing tables where they can buy animals and sacrifices and all sorts of stuff in a place that was supposed to be for worship. The people were excluding outsiders from being able to come in and worship. They were creating an obstacle. Jesus doesn't turn over the tables out of some sense of piety. He turns over the tables because God's people were putting up obstacles to worship. And so the very same thing he's paying the tax for, he's cleaning out the temple for. That's the first thing. His mission is to get people to experience God and be in personal relationship with him and each other. So whether it's paying a tax or turning over a table, he's going to remove the obstacle. Now, after he, after he overturns tables, he tells them, this temple, it's going to fall. I'll rebuild it in three days. We all know he's referring to himself. And so Jesus is actually the true location of God's presence. He is the true temple to whom we go to and worship and find our intimacy and love and devote ourselves to. On the cross, the curtain in the temple tore. And what that signified was God's presence, as Philip Yancey says, is on the loose out there somewhere. Because of Jesus. God wasn't confined to a box. He, he accommodated himself to the temple. But in the work and person of Jesus, he removed the obstacle. He removed the temple and said, if you want God's presence, come to me. This is our job as disciples, is to continually make sure that we ourselves are not obstacles, that we're not putting obstacles in front of people, that they may trip and then not see the person of Jesus in front of them. If they're going to trip, let them trip over the offense of the cross and fall into the arms of Jesus. The cross is offensive enough without us having to put all of these extra offenses there. Remember, it was called a ransom, atonement. In Mark 10, 45, this is where we'll close. Worship team, you can go ahead and come on back up. 
It says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I think he has the temple tax in mind, the ransom atonement in mind here. Jesus paid the way. He has paid the way. He has cleared the way to God. <coughs> Notice the very end. Does Peter have to pay his tax? No. Jesus paid Peter's tax for him. That is hinting at the gospel. Peter, I'll provide the payment. Receive it and turn it in. Jesus has self-sacrificially given all things that we may come to know him, removed every obstacle. And then when people organize their lives around the gospel, we become barrier-shattering people bent on getting people into the kingdom of God. This is our task, to self-sacrificially love well and represent Jesus well. Not putting obstacles, but turning those obstacles into opportunities to witness to the love of Christ. Amen? Thanks for checking us out and listening to the podcast. We hope this resource has been meaningful for you during this time in your life. We invite you to share this episode and leave us a review to let us know how we are doing in sharing the gospel in our cultural climate. Be sure to check us out online at thetablechurch.us.